You've heard all these crazy conspiracy theories, right? That Alexa actually captures everything you say. Yes. Or even more simply, that when you use the flashlight on your camera, it's actually been infiltrated by the Chinese under... I mean, I've heard it all. I didn't all. hear that one. Oh, it goes on and on and on. But I do think being in control of your own personal information is important. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and today my guest is Bill Hellman. I met Bill somewhere along the line at Dartmouth College, where he was on the board of trustees for a number of years, actually the chair of the board at one point, and even ran the search committee that led to the hiring of the current president of Dartmouth, Phil Hallen. And the thing about Bill is he's got personality. He's got character. He's got wisdom. Sure, he'll be a little bit embarrassed by that last one, but it's true nonetheless. The guy gets things done and gets it done at a very high level in a variety of different fields. He joined Greylock Partners in 1984, and that's really where he made his name, Greylock being one of the world's leading venture capitalist firms. And he ended up becoming managing partner of Greylock from 2000 to 2013, more or less. And he was involved in many early investments in companies you may have heard of, Facebook, among many others, being one of them. Well, it turns out that the job of the venture capitalist is really one about talent, evaluating talent. And when you invest in a company, what are you doing? You're investing in the leader, the entrepreneur, the person who's going to get to that dream that's being described in front of you. Of course, there are ideas and some ideas are better than others, no doubt about that. But most venture capitalists, and Bill is really no exception, understand that it's the individual, it's the person that will make the biggest difference in whether the startup is going to be successful or not. And this actually has something to do with selecting presidents of universities, as it turns out. And you can get a little feel for how Bill does things when you see that despite all of his experience in investing in companies and evaluating entrepreneurial talent for decades, when he was asked to chair the search committee for president of an Ivy League university, he went to work trying to figure out what that really means. So, I mean, how do you do that? Well, you talk to other presidents of other universities. How else? I mean, it sure seems obvious, but I could tell you that I have been on a search committee for a president of a major university myself. And I don't recall the chair of that search committee, or anyone else for that matter, saying we should spend time talking to presidents of other universities to really understand the job and to really try to understand what we should be looking for. So, you know, Bill knows a lot about business. He knows a lot about people. And he knows a lot about universities. He served on the board of Harvard as well as Dartmouth and some museums as well. He's on the board of directors of Ford Motor Company and Vernado Realty Trust. One of the things that makes Bill Bill is that he not only invests in entrepreneurs, he thinks like an entrepreneur. And as listeners of the SIDCast might know, I have a soft spot for people who think like entrepreneurs. You know, something else that Bill is or is all about is kind of like me. He likes food. He's a real foodie. And he admires the creativity and even genius on occasion of great chefs. But Bill goes further. He actually invests in new ventures by celebrity chefs, including David Chang, who's famous for Momofuku and among many others. A few years ago, I was speaking at a global foodie event, and it was put on by Rene Redzipi, who is the chef at Noma, one of the world's greatest restaurants for years and years. And who is in the audience but Bill Hellman? He had to leave as soon as my talk was over, so I never got to see him face to face afterwards. But he took the time to text me on his way out to say, I did Dartmouth proud. And that was kind of nice. So in this episode of the SIDCast, get ready for a wide-ranging discussion on business and entrepreneurship, on leadership and on people and on education with someone who's thought long and hard about each of these things and has lived a life of active involvement in each of these areas as well. Maybe most importantly, he's thought about these things differently than most other people. Here's Bill Hellman. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. I'm here with Bill Hellman. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. Great to be in Hanover. Haven't been for a while. Great to be here. We are in a beautiful side lobby area of the Hanover Inn and sitting in front of a chessboard that has no chess pieces, but we'll add a little bit to it metaphorically. So there's just so many things to talk about, but I want to talk about Mark Zuckerberg first. Who? Mark Zuckerberg. And actually, you know what I want to ask you about is, you know, Greylock was, maybe still is, an investor in Facebook, one of, if not the leader of that investment. First of all, what year was this? Like, How early was this in the Facebook journey? 
Wow, you're stretching my memory. I think it, it was ballpark 2007, 2008. So it's early. Facebook was still a .edu experiment. I think it had a few handful of million members, subscribers. It had raised one round of venture from a guy named Jim Breyer, who was at Excel. And we were invited, and I say invited because it was very, very competitive, to be the Series B investor. What made it competitive? Well, everybody back then, and even today, because there's so much capital and venture capital, was chasing what was perceived to be the best, the great, the superstar entrepreneurs. And the Facebook, even back then, had a little bit of a cult around it. So we were all competing, all vying to be, really? to be right chosen. Really? Right, right at the beginning? Even then. What was it? That and remember, there was zero revenue. There was no revenue. Nothing. So there was a few million users. We had user patterns. We saw how long people were on the site. We had a sense for what the site was being used for. But it was very, very early. And so you had those types of metrics that were attractive. But there was also some type of hype or energy around it. You called it a cult, even. Well, maybe it was. I I think at the time, and interestingly, Zuckerberg didn't show. So our process at Greylock, we typically have the entrepreneur, the founder, come in at the last chance to present the story and to talk about what we've learned in our diligence, to sort of do a final check. And he didn't come. He phoned in, said he was busy. He's too busy to raise money. Too busy for us. I don't know about raising money. And so he sent a guy named Matt Kohler, who was a superb entrepreneur and now a superb venture guy. And he did a really compelling job. And we ended up making the investment. As one of the partners of Greylock said at the time, it was an early stage investment at a later stage valuation. The valuation, this is public information, was something just shy of $500 million post money, which for Greylock was a very, very high value. Mm -hmm. And as a multiple of revenue was infinite. It was so, infinite. So yeah. you business school guys didn't teach us that that was value investing, but, but we made that investment. So you actually did it without meeting Zuckerberg. Oh, no, no, we met Zuckerberg. He just didn't show up for the last, the final, you know, the, uh, okay. the sort so of Okay, so tell me about that. Had you met him before you started interacting this way? So the guy at Greylock who really made this happen was a guy named David Z, and he gets all of the credit because a lot of us, the partnership, the general partners, the supposedly older and wisers, although that certainly could be called into question, were skeptical. And the skepticism, well, first of all, Zuckerberg back then may be different today. We can talk about that if you want. He was on a change the world mission. Hmm. This product, this service is going to change the way the world communicates. And he used the word the world all the time. That hmm. was the idea. And he was passionate about it like very few people you ever would have seen. Hmm. The problem for us, and again, David Z, my partner, gets 100% of the credit. A lot of us thought, well, wait a minute, this is a college thing. It's a .edu thing. And doesn't that mean every year 25% of your members graduate as seniors? And doesn't that mean every year you got to go out and get another 25% from the incoming freshmen? And it just seemed like such an obvious risk and an obvious issue. But David Z said, no, 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 no. This is going to follow you for life. And he had in his own head, this sounds easy today. It wasn't easy 10 or 12 years ago when he was making the case. He had in his head the facts that this would, in fact, be a part of your life forever. You'd have Facebook around your work, Facebook around where you live, Facebook around your family, around your high school, your college, your graduate school. And thank goodness we listened to him. He was right. Yeah. And so when you met Mark, were those the hoodie days? Yep, those were the hoodie days. Not that they've gone away entirely. No, no. Typically a dark black t-shirt and a hoodie, often Birkenstocks. You know, it was the iconic imagery that many associate with the early days of Facebook. Yeah. And he was still in Boston at that time? Or no, there? no. He was in Silicon Valley. So there was revenue, but no profit? Not, no revenue. No I revenue. mean, there might have been minimal revenue, but people were not paying for the service. There were no ads on the service. Yeah. He was really the first to say, well, let's go out and build the community and We'll worry about monetization later. Trust me on monetization. That was his yeah. big thing. I know you're a big analyst and supporter of founders. I saw you describe yourself as a founder groupie even. I am a founder groupie. <laughs> yeah. Still am. Still am. Once and a founder groupie, always a founder how, groupie. I mean, how do you assess someone so early in their journey? No revenue and a very high valuation, as you just described. How do you know who to bet on? You don't is the answer. So do we have some pattern recognition? Do we have some ideas? Do we think we can sometimes see around corners as to what the future will bring? We do, but we're far from perfect. And it's really, really hard to do. It's not something you get taught. It's not something that you can read a book. It's really, really hard. And we were wrong a lot. We made a lot of mistakes and we were lucky with Facebook. Yeah. So bringing Facebook up to a little bit more presence, of course, a very controversial company, privacy concerns and not just Facebook, but the big five, I suppose, if we include Microsoft along with Amazon and Google and Apple are dominating the world. The Europeans are looking for billion dollar fines left and right. And in the US, there's a lot of rumblings about investigations and some have started. What do you think about how this is all kind of evolved in this way? 
Well, it hasn't really evolved. I mean, I guess it's happened and we were all maybe asleep at the switch. Yeah. I mean, look at where we are today. How do you go to Google and say, undo the double-click acquisition, which has been proposed by Elizabeth Warren and which was done eight years ago? So undo it? What does that mean? How do you undo it? And I'm just picking on that example because we were the investors in DoubleClick. And I don't mean to pick on Senator Warren. So I don't know how to do it, but the facts are clear. The power of these four, five, six, seven companies is beyond anything anyone ever imagined. Yeah, and there have been critics all over the place, including from, all over the place. from within. You probably know Roger McNamee, who is a tuck person as well. Yes, he is. Uh, I say as well, you're a Dartmouth person. And he's written a book, and he's everywhere talking about how Facebook is ruining the world. And he was also an investor, in a sense, a partner with you, not the same firm. Yeah, not the same firm. He came in a lot later. I think there's a lot of theories and a lot of ideas, and some are good and some are not good. And the yeah. problem is who's going to make that decision? Mm -hmm. There's no regular, it's not an FCC issue. You know, it's not like this is a new drug. There are procedures in place, phase one, phase two, phase three, FDA. There's procedures in place for approving a new drug. This is something that no regulatory agency has ever taken on. So who takes it on? Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. And without leadership, I'm a big believer in leadership, in addition to being a founder groupie. I don't know how it gets done. Yeah. So we'll see. So that's interesting. There is really no regulatory process. I mean, there's FCC, I guess. There's monopoly. I think the, the one process that could take this on is the monopoly issue, right? So if you look at yeah. the percent of online advertising controlled by a Google or a Facebook, it's very, very high. But as a percent of total advertising, it's very, very low. So I don't know. I don't know how this plays out. Yeah. The other big thing that's come up, of course, with Facebook and came up with in the last election, and presumably it's not gone away, and it's not just in the U.S., is a lot of make-believe players and foreign interference and everything else, and Twitter's been part of that. You know, I'm not an expert on this industry, but I find it, like, unbelievably difficult to figure out how to solve a problem like that. Because on the one hand, you want people to have the right to say what they want, you know, under certain strictures, and it's an open forum, and that's the whole purpose of the thing. But then the pressure is on Facebook, Twitter, and others to eliminate the bad guys in this. Right. Something has to happen, but I could see an unfairness to this as well. This has to be the number one issue or at the top of everyone's list for the next bunch of years, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, I guess, generally we would call it cybersecurity. Yeah. So at Greylock, in addition to doing consumer and internet-enabled and things like that, early-stage investments, we have an enterprise practice which looks mm -hmm. at security. So we were, I think, the first investor, for example, in a firewall, which today is a very simple mm -hmm. internet piece of security. But if you consider how good the underground, let's just generalize and call it underground, is at hacking, and again, I'm overgeneralizing, oversimplifying, it would be easy to create a scenario where one could say that outsiders control all of our elections. I mean, so far we think, well, they were placing ads and the ads were fake or the ads were inspired by evil thoughts. How do we know that they didn't hack into the actual election systems, the election machines, mm -hmm. and maybe altered the results completely? We have no idea. You know, there's these rumors that the Russians can control our airplanes remotely. They have the technology to do that. Maybe they were behind the Malaysian crash in the, what was it, the Indian Sea, the African Sea, some faraway sea. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. I know at Greylock, we've met with some of the deep, dark people mm -hmm. who are underground, and we actually hire them to find the bad people in a new company, and that new company always does well. And I think it's a crazy, crazy continuum that I don't believe anyone really, truly understands. It's very scary what it's you just totally said. It's totally scary. I mean, controlling airplanes and elections, and that means, of course, anything. I, I mean, someday we might wake up and find out that 10 trillion, no, that sounds like too much. I'm not good with numbers. We might wake up someday and find out that $100 billion has been transferred from pick a bank, you know, the Hanover Savings Bank, <laughs> pick a bank, and that that money has been transferred into a set of accounts that we can't find, and no one would know. No one would have any idea that could happen. All right, so I'm going to ask you a basic question about this. What can the average person do to reduce? The average person is not going to be in the sights of these guys, I presume. Thank Thank goodness. Not, they don't care about most of us. I think there's a lot of simple things you can do, like change your passwords or have double authentication. I mean, there's a bunch of simple right. things that are pretty well known and well right. described right. that you can do to take away the easy stuff. But I mean, if somebody really wants Sid to get into your bank account, they can get in. There's nothing you can do to stop them. Mine too. Philosophically, the issue of I guess the negative effects of our totally wired interconnected world runs against the unbelievable benefits. There are a lot of people who are not wild about all the algorithms that are out there. But, you know, I don't mind that Amazon's suggesting I might like this book because I often do and it saves me some time. And I'm not against that. And that's kind of a trivial thing, but still. So there's this trade-off that's occurred. That's we've moved down. We've gone down a path. Maybe we can't go back anymore because we're so interconnected. No matter what regulations might come up, Facebook's not going away and Google's not going away. How do you, well, how do you think about So there's a bunch of common sense stuff happening 
the California state regulations on privacy were implemented, I believe today. You know about the European. It's to oversimplify. It's more of an opt-in than an opt-out. I think that makes a big difference. And Sid, you may be pleased to have a recommendation when you're online buying your own book that they recommend another of your books. I'm happy to hear that. Of course. But you don't know what they know about you and what they're selling and using that information for. Mm -hmm. You have no idea. And I wonder a lot. You've heard all these crazy conspiracy theories, right? That Alexa actually captures everything you say. Or even more simply, that when you use the flashlight on your camera, it's actually been infiltrated by the Chinese under... I mean, I've I didn't hear that one. Oh, it goes on and on and on. But I do think being in control of your own personal information is important. Reid Hoffman, a very high-profile guy, legendary guy, he started LinkedIn because he Googled himself a bunch of times and didn't like what came up. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that came up, he couldn't control. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'm going to start a service. So he started LinkedIn. Is that the core idea? That was the core idea of LinkedIn. And you were an investor We were an investor in that too. Reed, an incredible entrepreneur, and as you know, and maybe others, LinkedIn was sold, I think, last year or the year before to Microsoft for $25 billion. Amazing. The numbers are amazing. They're staggering. Yeah, and Reed Hoffman, that's his maybe third, maybe fourth. Oh, I don't know. The guys because he was part of the PayPal uh, team with Elon Musk and others. Force of nature. Yeah. Have you, L- have literally you, and physically. I mean, he's a yeah. big, giant man yeah. with big ideas and a big presence. And he continues to keep coming up with new stuff. It's pretty amazing. Do you know Elon Musk? I just mentioned him as a part of the PayPal mafia, but it made <laughs> I, I me do. think of it. I don't. I yeah, don't we, know Elon Musk. Yeah, I interviewed him years ago Did when you? he was at PayPal, early, early yeah, 10 years ago, 12 years yeah. ago. Right? And I just recently wrote a new case study on on Tesla that I taught with our MBA students at Tuck. And all they wanted to talk about is Elon Musk. Who is this person? Why does he act so crazy? Why does he do all these things? But yet, look what he created. Amazing. So I could ask you this about founders, because you're a founder expert. I want to say groupie. Sometimes founders do some really wacky things. And, you know, the CEO, the founder of Uber, yeah, the founder of Uber has gone out. There have been other examples. But we can just talk about Elon Musk and, you know, long, long list from his crazy tweets to taking on the SEC to creating a culture that apparently is to the right of Steve Jobs in terms of being aggressive on (laughs) dunk people. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know Elon, and I'm not an Elon Musk expert by any stretch. I think the part that is underestimate. I mean, the guy's an amazing inventor. Amazing. And he's changed the car industry like no one else has, maybe since Henry Ford. So here's the numbers. He just produced a year where he manufactured 350,000 cars. He has a market cap of 70-something billion dollars, Mm -hmm. right? So 300,000, 350,000. I'm not good with numbers. You, You do the math to 70 billion. Ford produces six and a half million cars a year, and their market cap is 25 billion. Mm -hmm. So they're clearly in different businesses. Elon Musk is selling technology that happens to be delivered with four wheels in a vehicle, right? And I think the part that people miss is that he's not just a great inventor, he's an amazing promoter. Mm -hmm. So a Tesla on auto, whatever they call it, autopilot, auto drive, Mm -hmm. someone dies. If that happened to GM or Ford or Toyota, they'd be put out of business. Elon Musk sits on the data for a month figures out how to present it, takes it to the authorities, and gets a barely a slap on the wrist. So his promotional abilities, his marketing abilities, is his genius beyond his inventing, is that a word? His inventing yes. abilities. So you remember a while ago, the what was it? This wasn't an SUV. What was that vehicle? Well, the Cybertruck. So the again, cyber an example of the his cy- genius. And the, then something breaks. The Cybertruck. <laughs> and they throw a steel ball at the window, and it breaks. And it breaks. Did he do that on purpose? Yeah, that's what people wonder, right? I mean, it was a PR home run. Yeah. So was he throwing a metal ball and breaking the glass window on purpose? Well, nobody knows but Elon Musk. So one question about Musk, and this applies maybe even to Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, maybe a few others that are not quite as notorious, is to take this type of personality, which I'll say break all the rules, ultra creative, always thinks differently, doesn't really care about anybody else, what anyone else thinks. Does it take that type of personality that really change the world? Maybe. It just might. Now, that type of personality can come out of all sorts of backgrounds, right? So Bill Gates, does he have that personality? Not really, but kind of. And he came out of Harvard undergrad. Jeff Bezos came out of a hedge fund. He has some parts of that personality, but not completely. Elon Musk, we've talked about. Reed Hoppin, we've talked about. Steve Jobs. I do think there is a characteristic, a personality characteristic in founders, my word, that is very unique. And it's Mm -hmm. something about sort of two or three things. Number one, it's being willing to challenge the standard convention like few do. Number two, it's having an idea that may seem crazy to the average person, but which the founder has an instinct that it will be a great product 
quote, service that will mm-hmm. deliver value. And the third thing is being able and enabled to accept risk. Mm-hmm. I think we don't think about risk properly as a world, as a society, and certainly not in business, right? We just don't. And yet these entrepreneurs, these founders, in, in my little talk, that you, I mean, Mike Bloomberg is a founder, right? Mm-hmm. And he thought about risk differently coming out of Solomon Brothers. And so my point, it happens in all ways, shapes, and forms. It's not just some crazy college kid who drops out, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. It's a personality trait. It's a character trait. And it works. I think it really does. Yeah. You're on the board of Ford, which I you mentioned already. Talk about an old world uh, yes, company that made it through the financial crisis so much more safer and better than GM and Chrysler for that matter. And now apparently he's changing everything. And did I hear, is the description still, we're a mobility company? Is that kind of yeah. what people are still talking about? Yeah. I mean, look at the way people move around today. It's completely different. Neither of my kids have their driver's licenses. Neither own a car. Very few of their, they're 25 and 26 years old. Very, very few of their friends own a car. Mm-hmm. It's not just Uber and Lyft. They ride their bikes more. They walk more. They use those little scooter things that are everywhere. You know, yes. My kid lives in Santa Monica. It's urban litter. There are these scooters everywhere. There's Lime and Bird and all kinds of different. So, yeah, I think people are moving around, particularly in urban environments, differently. Now, if we go to a big ranch in Texas, are they still driving around Ford F-150 pickup trucks? Yes, they are. Absolutely, they are. And incidentally, will that truck change? Are we going to have electric trucks? We are. This image that the truck driver wears the cowboy hat and smokes Marlboros and wears cowboy boots? No, they want an electric truck, too. And so that truck has to have the right amount of power, of torque, of tow, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it can be done with electric. Yeah, and Ford announced not that long ago, I guess, the Mustang, the electric Mustang. Electric Mustang. Which is our more iconic brand for Ford than the Mustang. Can you imagine? Who would have ever dreamed that sort of the original muscle car, the original high-performance sedan would be an electric? And they've already bumped up against their limit of pre-orders they were going to take. Yeah. When I heard that announcement, it made me think of almost like an Apple type of announcement. You better hurry, because there may be one or two left in the state of New Hampshire. You can maybe get one. (laughs) I had a Mustang, one of my first cars as a teenager. It's a great car. Still is. But, you know... It speaks to something, which is that Ford's all in on this. You know, if you're not sure about something, you want to put the crown jewel brand. Mustang is the best brand. It's the Mac. It's everything for Ford. And you're putting the electric brand right on that. I mean, there's no backing out of that. Ford, so there's no insight here, probably true of most of the things I'm going to say today. The auto production business, making cars is a hard business, right? GM, Fiat Chrysler, Ford, all struggling because cars are more complicated than ever before. There's thousands and thousands of parts. Look at the level of recall over the last bunch of years, right? Mm-hmm. Up and up and up. So making cards is a really, really hard business. And and then what happens? Eli Musk shows up and says, hey, we're going to have electric cars. There's no market for electric cars. They're 2 3% of the total production of vehicles. But I think, and I think Elon Musk thinks, and I bet you you do too, that electric is going to be a really important part of overall vehicle sales three years, five years, seven years from now. And then what else is going on? We have this whole automated driving you know, autonomous vehicle thing going on. Right. What's that all about? Mm-hmm. Are we really going to get in a car that has no steering wheel, no brake, no driver, and sit in the front or the back and let them whisk us away somewhere? If you live in a big city like New York, will Broadway and Fifth Avenue be only autonomous? Will there be hybrid environments? No cars from 125th to Canal? I don't know. Will a car not look like what it looks like today? Will, can you get the napping car, the dining car, the movie viewing car? And again, with no driver, is this like the Jetsons? Is this like 30, 100 years? No, I don't know when this is going to happen. Could happen five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. I don't know. Jetsons, for those who might not know, yeah. is a great old show from the era, the Flintstones and the Jetsons, about a future world, make-believe future world where they were flying cars. And it seems like it's not that crazy anymore. I don't think flying cars are crazy at all. By the way, people are making drones that you can sit in. Is that right? Yeah, it's a flying car. That's a flying car. So if we get to autonomous vehicles, where they're on Fifth Avenue or they're somewhere else or wherever they are. People won't need, tell me if you agree, people won't need as many cars. Most, Co- let's say correct. The, the classic family is two cars. I don't know if there's a classic family anymore, but let's just say two cars. Well, you probably want one for emergencies in the middle of the night when your kid is sick or some such thing. I don't know. Not in a city, but in most of the country. But you definitely don't need a second one because the car is going to come to you. It'll pick you up. It'll take you where you want to go. And you don't really care about it after that. You don't really care. And it'll all be programmed so it'll be much, much more efficient than you getting in your car and driving because there'll be a grid that's controlled by a single source. I mean, look, there's 17 million cars sold in North America last year. If we have autonomous driving, let me back up. I don't know how often you drive your car, but the average person uses their car 12 to 15 percent of the day. Yeah. So that's sort of a yeah. commute. That's a trip to a grocery store or a trip to a bar or a restaurant, something like that, right? So we have this 
underutilized asset, which is sitting around all day in your tuck parking space, because a professor of your eminence, of course, has his own parking space. You haven't been around campus lately to see what parking looks like, but go yeah, ahead. Exactly. <laughs> or it sits in town, you know, yes. or it sits at home, right? Yes. And so why is Uber so effective? Because it takes this asset that wasn't used, but 20% of the day, now it's used 80% of the day. So if we do that to all the cars, what ends up happening? Do we need parking garages anymore? What will the curb look like? Will we have parking meters? What about auto insurance? You won't insure the car that drives you around. Somebody will. Is it going to be Google or Ford? I don't know. So parking garages, insurance, it all changes. Yeah, it, it it's all, really it, cool to think about. It changes almost, I don't know, almost every industry, but many, many industries. Totally. And urban design, you know, we have Google, the Sidewalk Labs project in yeah. Toronto is one of many examples yeah. out there. But back to Ford or GM or anyone else. How do you think about it, this problem? You're going to sell fewer cars. Well, no, that's not good. The, what if you, so the average car, and again, I know averages are dangerous. There's a great Warren Buffett quote that says something like, and you'll know this better than I, if you're six feet tall, beware crossing the river that is on average four feet deep. Mm-hmm. And so I think averages can be really, really dangerous. But if the average car is held for nine years, well, that's using it 20% of the time. That's putting 8,000 miles on it a year. So if you use your car 80% of the time, mm-hmm. now you're putting 80,000 miles. So much big implication for service. And probably you turn over cars faster. So you may not sell 17 million a year. You might sell 12. But then wait a minute, the number goes back up because you're not holding it nine years anymore. You're holding it for three or four. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I were smart enough to figure that. I don't have any idea how this all sorts out. Sure they are. But it all floats around in my brain. And yeah. I'd love to, we need to find a smart team of undergrads to figure this out for us. Well, it's almost like an elasticity question. The capacity is going to go up. You're going to use it much more. Therefore, you're going to have, you're not going to need as many cars. Where's your equilibrium? My yeah. gut on this is that you don't need gut you're on the board of Ford the analyses have been done a hundred times over it's going to lead to fewer cars being sold it has to it has Has to to. and so what is that leading aside even the Teslas that are redefining the whole industry that's a tough place and the type of leadership you need to figure that out and take kind of your legacy business I mean what Ford is doing is kind of amazing to completely upend everything that's been going on for a hundred years. Oh my goodness, it's so hard. Imagine they have all these plants, they have unions, they just ratified a new agreement with the UAW. They've been good partners to the UAW. UAW's been a good partner to Ford, but it's all going to get thrown up in the air, I think. Or maybe it already is. Yeah, I mean, it's a brave new world. It's really interesting. On the topic of leadership, we're here, as you know, and as we mentioned, the Dartmouth campus. And yeah. Earlier last year, I did a podcast with the president of Dartmouth, Phil Hanlon. And you know him extremely well. You're one of his advisors. You were the chair of the board of trustees for a number of years yeah. as well. Chair of the search committee, too. And I mean, chair of the search committee. Just in case you're wondering. Yes. <laughs> My question is what you learned personally about higher education as an industry yeah. through this process. Because it is a wacky industry. It's totally wacky. And frankly, I believe it's one of our core, unique assets in the United States. I mean, it's really something that's so important to our world position, Mm -hmm. higher ed. And I don't think we appreciate that enough. But let me come back to that in a second. So when I met Phil Hanlon, well, first of all, I can recruit a VP marketing or a VP engineering to any of my tech companies in the Greylock portfolio. I've done it 100 times, maybe 500 times. I know the pool of talent. Mm -hmm. I know how to assess that pool of talent. They know me. We check each other out. Mm -hmm. It works really, really well. When I was asked to do this search, I was scared shitless. Am I allowed to say that? You just did. I was scared to death. And I thought to myself, what if I fail? Mm. Oh my goodness, what if I fail? Mm. I can't fail. And so what I did, and I had a committee that was amazing, a co-chair, Diana Taylor, amazing. We went around and met 40, 50 people that were A, presidents, B, provost, potential presidents, and C, just influencers. Mm -hmm. And we try to develop a frame of reference. Like, what are we looking for? Mm -hmm. And how will we recruit this? How will we find this person? Could we take a dean of a business school and make them president of Dartmouth? Could we take the dean of a ed school? Could we take a professor who teaches history at some great school? What about somebody who was at a public university? Mm -hmm. UVA, Michigan, Berkeley, North Carolina, fantastic places. So we went out and did a lot of homework. And what I learned... And this is going to sound a bit cynical. What I learned was that the administration, the leadership of most higher ed institutions, uh, got there through default. Through default. Through default. Which means? Sounds a little bit angry and a little bit cranky, but let me explain. So, for example, if you're not a fantastic teacher or if you're not a great researcher, you might get asked to be the chair of your department. Right. Or you might be get asked to become an associate provost or an assistant dean. Mm. And then what happens is you sort of move through that process. Mm-hmm. You go from assistant dean to associate dean to dean to dean of this to dean of that to provost. To pro- yeah. In other words, there's this succession plan. And is there training along the way? I asked four presidents who had business schools. 
How often do you go down? You know, I asked the president of Harvard, how often do you go across the street to Harvard Business School? One of the great places to learn about strategy and leadership. And the answer is zero. Zero. And this is Larry Baca? Well, this was a long time ago. Oh, it was a long time ago. We'll, we'll leave the exact person. Okay, better off. Because I, Larry is a superstar president, so it's kind of interesting. We can go uh, ask Larry, too, and I bet I know the answer. <laughs> Same answer. Seriously. <laughs> so I was really nervous that this idea of leadership in higher ed was underinvested and that the talent pool was really, really thin. Mm-hmm. I was really nervous about that. And I think we lucked out because Phil Hanlon, he was the complete package. He had been at places like Caltech. He had the Dartmouth background. Michigan is one of the most impressive places I'd ever visited. Just an incredible place. He had been with Mary Sue Coleman, who, as a mentor and a leader, incredible, iconic. So it was pretty obvious that he was, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy, the person. So why do you think that there's this disconnect? Notwithstanding what I just said about about the weak talent pool. Yeah, so I've noticed it as well. I've done a lot of work in both K-12 which, by the way, the K-12 community, it's a giant world. There's more and more recognition that actually leadership is a gigantic differentiator on the quality of what these kids in school end up experiencing. It's not generally accepted, but it's becoming more and more accepted. I've done work in higher ed as well, along with being, obviously, in higher ed. And there's this inevitable, as you described, this deep disconnect between management, leadership, strategy, how to run a business, and the academic uh, venture. But when you're president of a Dartmouth or any other place, you're the CEO. I mean, it's a complicated thing because you don't nearly as much power as a regular CEO, but you are the CEO of an institution and you need to know how to do a lot of things. Why do you think that there's just, you know, all these presidents you talk to that didn't go across the street to talk to their business school colleagues that they almost always will respect, but never thought they could learn something from them? I can't quite understand it. Well, I'm a big believer in looking outside and in speaking to a whole bunch of people. I mean, they call it best practices. That seems a bit trite. But I do think higher ed needs to get out more. (laughs) And is that true at Dartmouth? I mean, this is an amazing place. And we've had a long line of presidents that have done amazing things for this institution. But I'm a paranoid person. Could we always be doing better? I believe so. And so how do you do that by hiring the best people? I heard you give a seminar once on how to hire talent. It was impactful. I took a lot home from that. How many people in our administration have heard you give that talk? I guess zero. Not very many. Okay, so... I rest my case. Having said that... Although, to be fair, Phil Hallen and I, the president, had a long conversation about the super boss's research that you're referring to. Yeah. So he was definitely interested. Yeah. But as far as having people do seminars or be... No, not really. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of a negative if you're too businessy in higher ed. Yeah, I understand that. Right. There's this reaction against... I remember being in a board meeting here at Dartmouth with a bunch of faculty members, and I asked about strategy strategy of a department relating to a division and the responsible strategy is a business question oh my and my response to that was actually it's not it's actually not so i said all right let's not call it what's your plan <laughs> oh they said well that's fine <laughs> they got a plan they got a plan <laughs> so you know it's sort of a negative if you're too businessy right yeah. oh the suits over in parkhurst want us to think about this or that and i think we have to all excel together it's a part of it it's an institution and we're benefited from unbelievable demand for what we do from students we're benefited from a faculty that is amazing totally amazing and incredible in the way they teach and the research and in their prowess of creating knowledge, but you know we can always do better. So thinking about doing better, and not specifically Dartmouth, but a little bit of crystal ball gazing, higher ed is going through a transformation like every other industry, whether we like it or not. Just the fact that we don't pay a lot of attention to it doesn't mean it goes away. Right. And online education and right. tremendous pressure on how much students pay, whether they get jobs, crisis of the liberal arts. There's all kinds of different versions of this. And I wonder about a lot of the schools that are at the middle to lower quartile of, say, prestige. It's going to be, it already is very, very tough because there are all these online courses. You can take a course on physics from an MIT, for example, professor that may very well have won a Nobel Prize or come close. And this professor, she or he knows how to communicate. How are you going to match that yeah. uh, when you're at, you know, a small state university that does not have those resources? Well, so the online stuff, we haven't figured out. So MIT, others do a great job, but they haven't figured out sort of the certification. How do you translate that into having some sort of skill level? But there are places like Southern New Hampshire, which I think have done an amazing yes. job right. of, Real innovators. Of, of providing an online degree granting program. Mm-hmm. And look, college is four-year residence-based college is too expensive. And by the way, it's not for everybody. And it shouldn't be for everybody. And we have this obsession with, oh, you got to go to you know a four-year top whatever school. And I think we need to get rid of that obsession. We need to educate our demographic, our population in a different way. And we'll do 
do that. And online and technology will be a really important part of it. We're so, just at the beginning of that. Yeah, we are. I mean, schools that are, you know, the Harvards and Dartmouth, I mean, this is obviously excessively elitist that not everybody will like, but it's a fact. There's deep support in the entire ecosystem for these schools. The roots run really, really deep. It would take two or three generations of mismanagement. More than that. Yeah, Dartmouth really More than that, maybe I think, longer. <laughs> I think some of these schools have had two or three generations of mismanagement. <laughs> but there's a lot of schools that don't have that slack, that protection. And they're the ones that are under the gun. And there's going to be a lot of damage along the way. I mean, think about the demand, right? So Dartmouth lets in 8 or 10% of the yeah. applicant pool. Wow, I mean, we could mess it up and we'll still let in 15% of our applicant pool, right? And, it's and maybe not, that's why... It's you know, a monopoly the, of some sort. And maybe with respect to the Facebook and other conversation earlier. But that's one of the reasons why universities, especially higher prestige universities, don't look outside. Don't worry about it very much. They don't need to. And, and They really don't need you know, to. They're right. They're, but I think, that's right, da- but I think it's dangerous. Yeah. I think it's dangerous. Because you could always get better, and you are in competition with other schools that are in your bracket, so to speak. I mean, this isn't the forum for it, but I think there's a whole bunch of so-called elite universities that are underperforming against what they should be, right? And maybe to take it a different way, to show the power of leadership. Look at what has happened at University of Chicago in the last 10 years, right? Look at what's happened at Northwestern in the last 10 years. Look at USC in the last 20 years. I think attributable, I would argue, to leadership, to management, to people who are really good. Now, they were in each case, they were an academic. Zimmer's an academic. Morty Shapiro's an academic. Right, Steve, Sam- an academic. Steve Sampler, yes. In each instance, an academic, but an extraordinary academic who really changed entirely, 100 percent, each mm-hmm. of those schools. Yeah, so that's very interesting. USC is a great example. Great example. They moved from middle tier, very, very top tier in Southern California, the school in Southern California, because of the alumni network, etc. But they're in everyone's list of top. They went from the now. University of Spoiled Children, USC. To being, you know, a top 25 university. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. And if that. By the way, I said, I think I have this yeah. right, but I think Morty Shapiro included six or eight university presidents have come from the Steve Sample years at USC. What's a bigger compliment than to have seated six or eight university presidents from your tenure there? Incredible. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. That's very much in line with the things that I've done some work on. Super bosses. Know, super bosses. Yeah. So you said I read the book. And you put in the plug. So great this guy. Let's switch gears a little bit. Okay. So you and I have a few other things besides Dartmouth in common, and that's food. And you and I met, in fact. Yeah, it's a good thing this thing isn't visual. Everybody can't think I am. <laughs> Hardly. But you and I ended up being in the same place in Copenhagen at the yes, MAD conference a few yes, years ago. Yeah. You've been very involved in That's Rene's recipe, who's the legendary chef from Noma, and I think you've worked with and maybe are invested with, correct me if I'm wrong, David Chang and maybe some others as well. Why this sector? I mean, it's a cool sector. It's fun. I love it. But that seems to be not kind of your core Greylock work. It's like the... So I, Helman, I think there, there's a couple of drivers. So number one, I think food is really important. I think the way we connect with our food, the way we think about food production, the supply chain of food, the way we value food, it's important to our health. It's really important to the climate. You know, it's the number two climate issue after mobility, after automobiles and vehicles. So that's sort of the highest level of drivers. Number two, the people who are the owners, the chefs, the founders, to me resemble in many ways the internet and tech entrepreneurs of 20 or 30 years ago. Really? Just with the lag. Yeah. So think about it. Software engineers 30 years ago, no one paid any attention to them. But that's what Zuckerberg is. He's a software engineer, mm-hmm. right? That's what the founders of all these companies really are. And I think in the same ilk, in the same vein, a venture investor, a helper to the founders of those tech companies is not that different to the founders of these food companies. So I actually met Dave Chang through Jim Kim, through the Korean connection. Jim Kim, former president. Jim Kim, former president Dartmouth. They were both selected as, I believe I had this right, time 100 peoples of the year. And they, being the only two Koreans, met. And Dave said something like, you know, I have no one to talk to. Who do you talk to? And he said, well, I don't know. And so I met. So being an entrepreneur can be really, really lonely. And so the driver for me is health climate, the importance of food. And I think the secondary part is an ability to have some influence and some impact helping out this group of people who heretofore have had, they don't have boards. It's not like Ford, they have a board that meets monthly. And that was the same as software entrepreneurs 20 years ago. So those are the two drivers. Right. 
Yeah. So what do you think about, do we call it high-end food or high-quality food? It's not always, you know, super. Some of David Chang's restaurants are not, maybe most of them are not, you know, like the old Four Seasons or any of the others, like Thomas Keller's restaurants. But what's going on in the industry? And I don't necessarily David Chang. I mean, what are the trends that you're seeing that are exciting? From a well, business- I'm, I'm not the expert, but I think a couple things are going on. So first of all, and this may be a New York-centric point of view, although mm-hmm. I believe it's true in L.A. and other places, this idea of a large hundred-cover restaurant, very fancy fine dining, dress code, etc., I think is dead. It's just dead. So today, and again, this is part of the entrepreneurial trend in culinary. Today, the restaurants that are opening are 30, 40 seats. Come in your jeans. We're going to have a casual, fun experience. Emphasis on the word experience. Experience. And the food is going to be delicious, right? Maybe a little more reasonably priced. And I think that's where the world's going. And I see that in LA and in Chicago and Washington and Boston, New York, London, Paris, the cities that I, sounds kind of stupid. Those are the only cities I hang out in, but but those are the. (laughs) Did you count Hanover in there? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think that's the major, major trend. This idea of a four hour formal, you got to wear a coat and tie if you're a boy and it's six courses and it's really, really heavy and it's meat based. It just isn't going to happen anymore. So that's to me the number one trend. And we're seeing so much more creativity. So much more creativity. It's amazing. When I was at Noma that time for the MAD conference in Copenhagen, when we had dinner at Noma, there's I don't know, 25 course meal, each tiny portion. Each is just a bite. But they right. were all so, there was not just was each dish creative, but there were so many things I was like absorbing from a leadership point of view. Yeah, they're very intricate. Yeah. When you show up, for example, what happens? The entire kitchen staff, meaning high-end chefs, are coming out to greet you. Yeah. Now, I know it wasn't me. I was with some VIPs, but I think they do that a lot. <laughs> well, that's the culture. That's part of making it an experience. Yeah. But when you're at Noma, and Noma is a one-off, it's hard. I mean, that guy, Rene, is so creative and so imaginative, and his team, Ben, the chef, but they have 60 cooks there. <laughs> they're serving what? 45, maybe times two, maybe 90 diners a night, and they have 60 chefs. That's outrageous. That's amazing. Yeah. The whole industry is really interesting because you also have the food truck trend, and then you have, I don't know whether Shake Shack is the first, but it certainly is the biggest, of creating this multi-unit mega chain. Yeah, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Shake Shack. Shake Shack, yeah. Goes on and on, right? Right. So I think David Chang's trying to do that. I think many of these top chefs. And those are a little higher. So our generation, yours and mine, we're used to McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King and I guess Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell. So these are all, I mean, look at Sweetgreen, right, which is a new. Sweetgreen is a really interesting story. Right. Three founders from Georgetown. So yeah, those are all important trends in food, no doubt about it. So one of the other things about like chefs as founders. So when you're in a higher end restaurant, I understand that when you have multiple restaurants, the head chef, Jose Andres, is not in 25 restaurants at the same no, he's time. Not. It ain't possible. Although, you know, a pair from Le Bernard didn't may very well be there. Well, he only has one restaurant. Because that's where he is. He's there, right? Or Renee Redzipi from Noma. But the brand and the restaurant are completely tied in with the chef and the chef's name. Totally. Chef. But nobody lives forever. And so the question is, how do you create a going concern from a business point of view, right? How do you do that when your entire company is so based on the yeah. on one personality? Yeah. I think it's hard. And we've seen a little bit of that over over the years, but the whole generation of fine dining chefs are now in their 60s, and we're going to see a bunch of this over the next 10 years. And I think there'll be a continuum of outcomes. Some will transition to a next chef. Some will shut down. Mm-hmm. Some will change. Some will become a look at Gotham Bar and Grill, a very popular neighborhood, right? The chef of 20 years leaves. They bring in another person and she decides to remake the place. So right. it has the same name. It's a completely different place. Yeah. We shouldn't be surprised that that's the kind of change that would happen. Yeah, but I mean, Gotham Bar and Grill is, is associated with the brand is the restaurant. I know. Is that Donnie Meyer restaurant as well? No, it's not. Gramercy is. Gramercy. But so, Gotham. But they've had confused. different, it reminds me of the same Style, Same idea, right? yeah. So the restaurant, the brand name continues at the restaurant, which is great because then you can have different chefs. But when the chef and the restaurant become one, that's where the difficulty is. Well, and don't forget, a lot of restaurants put their name over the door. The, the chef's name. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So that makes it even harder. But maybe it's the same thing as but, some but, other but industries. But why is this any different than the transition we've had at Greylock, which is a small company, and we've gone from one you know, managing partner to another managing partner to another managing partner. Very hard to do. Each managing partner a little bit different. Why is it any different than the transition to Dartmouth? I mean, Jim Wright to Jim Kim to Phil Hanlon, three very, very different people. Yeah. And before yeah. Jim Wright, I mean, so I don't know. You're the super boss guy. Here I go. Plug again. But I think transitions, management, leadership transitions, ownership transitions are really, really hard. 
I think there are some differences across those examples. And the biggest one is when your company is personality-based. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a, even a Martha Stewart. It doesn't just happen in the food business. It happens in other places. So what about a company like Ford? I mean, it started with Henry Ford, legendary entrepreneur, innovator, founder. Had his uh, name on the door. And his name is on the door. And I know there's some family members still involved in ownership on the board and occasionally in leadership. But they went through that transition. Yeah, I mean, so, but again, I think they're more similar than different. I've been on the board of Ford through three CEOs, Alan Mulally to Mark Field to Jim Hackett, each extraordinary in their own right, each very, very different. And you can't tell me that going from Jim Wright to Jim Kim to Phil Halen hasn't been different. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's Dartmouth. It's always Dartmouth. And nobody has, only the Lord had his name on the door way back a couple hundred, 250 years ago. But you can't tell me it wasn't really, really different. It's different. Yeah, is there, and each CEO of a company has a chance, and usually they want to put that imprint of what they're going to be. Of course, because that's why they're CEO, because they have that's that. That's why they're CEO. They have that drive, that passion, that vision. Yeah, and you wouldn't want to hire someone, I take it, that didn't. who didn't want to right. change the world in some way. Right. Even for a company or organizations 250 years look, old. Look at the chair of the board here. So Steve Mandel to me to Laura Ritchie. Laura Ritchie's amazing, absolutely amazing. And yet we're all very, very different. Yeah. Do we all care about the same thing? Yeah, we want Dartmouth to be great. So we just have maybe 10 minutes left. So let's do some short, quick, short answer type things. Time sure flies when you're having fun. It's unbelievable. Well, I should make these three or four hour long podcasts. Oh, but- no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Do you have a hobby? I have a lot of hobbies. You're number one. Hanging out with people and learning from them. Did you ever read, what's his name? Super Bosses? We've been through that one. Grazer, what's his name? The, oh, uh, Brian Grazer's book? Yeah. The book he just put out? The Curiosity book? Yeah. Yeah, because he does these curiosity conversations, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is actually the big reason why I started doing this podcast, talking to interesting it, people, and it's just it, fun. It's actually, people think that I like to drink wine, and I do drink occasional glass of wine, maybe more than occasional, but the reason I do it is because it's a chance to hang out with people yeah. and learn from them. And learn from them. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. Love it. That's like the tagline of the Sidcast. Beautiful. You're not only promoting the book, you're promoting the podcast. Hey, anything I can do to help. Okay, so how would your parents have described you as a kid? Out of control. Difficult, out of control, a real problem. You have siblings? Two younger sisters. What do they do? One is a mom of three daughters. And my younger sister, and this has had a lot of influence on me, is blind and has been handicapped her whole life Mm -hmm. and is a social worker and an incredible young woman. Right. Wow. And Amazing. So I would imagine your parents dedicated a tremendous amount of time, tremendous obviously, because I've heard a story like this from some other folks that I've talked to where there was someone that had some type of disablement that it changed the family, obviously. Yeah, but I think the credit to my mother, she, it was almost invisible to myself and my other sister. Mm-hmm. She did an amazing job with my younger sister, Becky. Yeah. Are your parents still alive? No, both are not. Did they see your success? Well, it hasn't happened yet, so it's happened. <laughs> I'll have to <laughs> mail it up to the pearly gates. I did a podcast with Jerry Sachs, the Broadway producer, who is the son of Holocaust survivors. And he went to Dartmouth. And they were just devastated when he decided to go into the theater business. He was in pre-med and the whole thing. And they had a hard time with it. And I asked him, you know, did your parents get to see your success? Because, you know, he won many Tony Awards. He's still active. And he said his father passed away, but his mother did see it. And it meant so much to him. My mother was an Armenian immigrant, 100% Armenian. And as such, her definition of success would have been very, very different. Yeah. You know, just do the right thing. Be a good person. Be kind, help somebody every day. It's a little different than I think the way most of us think. Yeah. Do you have a Wikipedia page? No, of course not. Okay, now how'd you get rid of it? How'd you get rid of it? Because <laughs> of course you'd have one. Somebody would do it. No, I don't have one. Yes, but wouldn't somebody do it for you? No. Or no, no, create no, not, it whether you I'm like it or not? Not high profile enough okay. for that. Oh, you, know. for sure, but not me. I don't know where that Wikipedia page I'm on Facebook because when we invested, they asked us to all be on Facebook. We invested in Instagram, so we all went on Instagram. We invested in LinkedIn, so we're all on LinkedIn, but I don't use any of them very much. Okay, so I'll have to connect with you on Facebook when the podcast oh, no. episode comes out because I bet you have a lot of followers. and oh, Friends, sorry, they're friends. Followers on Instagram. I have like 30 on Instagram. You can be a follower on Instagram. I'll be 31. At, at Bill Hellman. <laughs> Is there a decision you made that you wish you could take back? Oh, many, 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 many. Give me one. Anyone. It could be an investment. could be a more yeah, personal so I'll, decision. I'll make, I'll make it not personal because that would be really embarrassing for me. <laughs> so the first thing I looked at when I went to Greylock was a guy who came in and said he had a new idea for sneakers. He had a new source of leather in England, which was so soft and supple, his words. He was going to change the way people wore sneakers. Hmm. And I thought, well, what the hell is he talking about? Hmm. There's Nike and there's Puma and there's Adidas and Converse. There's just no NFW. There's no way this can work. We could have owned 50% of Reebok for $2 million. But I was too smart for that. Wow. So I take that one back. Reebok is a really, the history of Reebok is oh, so Oh, it's an amazing company. Yeah, we can go amazing. on. Yeah, that, go on that's on another topic. The way that Reebok actually went past Nike yeah. in the incredible. 80s. Incredible. When Nike had a, what, a $550 million lead in revenue. No, it's incredible. Really, it's an incredible story what he yeah, did. It is. But I got lots of mistakes. That's a whole other hour or two. <laughs> 
Well, okay, one more question, an advice type of question. I like to ask folks this question, a certain flavor to it. Imagine you can go back in time to when you were 21 years old. Maybe not in this beautiful spot because this has been renovated, but you may not have been all that far from where we're sitting now. And you can somehow kind of cozy up next to the young Bill Hellman, who no doubt was in the library studying like crazy. No doubt. And you'd lean over and say, you know, 21-year-old Bill, if there's one thing you really need to know about life, this yeah. is it. Yeah, so this is a bit standard. It's almost like a commencement address. But I was very lucky in that my crazy Armenian mother let me do whatever I thought I should do. I'm sorry, I wanted to do, not what I should do. And so when I turned down a job offer from Solomon Brothers, instead of my mother saying, wow, you need the money, you have to go take that. And I said, no, I'll be unhappy. She said, okay, I'm glad you turned it down. And I didn't have a lot of job offers to turn down. But the one thing I would say is if you do what you really want to do, what your passion, what your interests support, you'll do better. And it will work out. It will work out. Have confidence that it will work out. You'll take more risk. Yes. You'll fail. Yes. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know, again, it's a bit trite, but there's so much pressure on young kids today. And there was on us back then to do what you think you're supposed to do. You have to go pay off your school loans. You have to go work for a certain firm in New mm-hmm. York or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Do what you really want to do. It'll work out better. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say you should do what you're really good at, but just because you're good at something doesn't mean you like it. I I think that's wrong. Yeah. To me, it's about energy and passion and commitment Mm -hmm. and dedication. And those things, you can only put into those things if you really, really believe in it. Yeah. Believe. That's what I'd say, believe. Something you believe. And you also said one last thing about happiness. So your mom said or asked or responded to you saying, you know, I wouldn't be happy doing that at Solomon Brothers or whatever it was. My mom used to say, there's only one thing that has to happen every day. You look in the mirror and say, did I do the right thing today? And do I feel good about myself? Mm -hmm. She says, if you feel good about yourself, the rest doesn't matter. It's a bit arrogant, but I think it's true. But we're so worried about what the other people think. Mm. Actually, the age of Facebook, we constantly are bombarded, and we constantly. do it ourselves. Constantly. This is a big issue with young people, right? Totally. You, you go on Facebook, and everyone looks like they're having the most amazing lives. Totally. Our lives, you know, our normal lives, which is ups and downs, ups Instagram. and downs. How many yeah. people put on Instagram the troubles they're having? Yeah. Only the fancy meals, the beautiful bottles of wine, the beautiful places they visit, and the beautiful people they hang out with. That's right. That's, life, right. that's not life. So my mother used to ask me all the time after I moved away and was doing what I was doing, are you happy? That's all she cared about. And the answer was yes, she was happy. Yeah. So, of course, I said yes, no matter what the answer was, because it made her happy. But often, it was an honest answer. But that's all she cared about. And I've transferred that without even knowing. You know how much you learn from your parents without totally, even knowing it? Totally agree. And that's what I want to know from my daughter. And the greatest thing is I talked to my daughter, Erica, just yesterday. And she asked me, Dad, are you happy? And nice. I, I was like, wow, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> I guess the one thing I've learned, I've learned a lot getting older. Actually, what I've learned is that I don't know much. But happiness is hard. It really is. It's hard. It's a technique. It's hard. So that's something to strive for in 2020. Happy New Year, Sid. Happy New Year to you. Bill Hellman, thanks so much Thank for being you. on this podcast. Great, great, great pleasure. See ya. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.